And welcome back to another Mind Matters, folks. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be discussing the intellectual uh, WrestleMania of, uh, of probably the last five or ten years. What we're talking about today is the debate that had occurred just this last Friday, April 19th, between Dr. Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Zizek. Slavoj Zizek. Zizek, thank you, Zizek. The discussion was called Happiness, Capitalism versus Marxism. And that um, was kind of interesting because our last show was, uh, was focused on the subject of happiness. So uh, when you do eventually get around to seeing this full two-and-a-half, two-hour, 40-minute discussion between Peterson and Zizek, uh, Zizek does get into the subject of, uh, and so does Peterson for that matter, um, happiness as well. So uh, that, that was a nice um, addition to... Uh, what we were discussing last week. Although the main focus, at least in principle, of this debate between these two giants was capitalism versus Marxism. And a little bit about Zizek, since he's, uh, he is quite well known among many academics and, and people who read Marxist theory around the world, he is a Slovenian philosopher and professor at the Institute of Sociology and Philosophy at the University of Ljubljana. Uh, he has works on cultural studies, psychoanalysis, and above all, as we were saying, Marxism. So uh, the expectation going into watching this debate was that he would be this kind of staunch uh, defender of Marxist and, and communist values going in. And um, the way the debate was structured was that each of them would have about 20 minutes to get up on the stage and make their case for or against Marxism. So uh, Peterson, uh, in his very formal and, uh, and critical way, begins to deconstruct piece by piece the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Engels. And uh, he does a, quite a brilliant job of it. Uh, he gets into um, several very easy-to-identify flaws in the Communist Manifesto. I guess they're easier once he describes them, but uh, certainly he, he makes things self-evident. Uh, one of those things was, or one of those, one of the problems he has with it, is the kind of narrow way in which the Communist Manifesto reduces all struggle of human beings to uh, economic issues. And um, what I found interesting and uh, and kind of important is the perspective that that Peterson quite often brings to the table. Uh, when discussing these things, and that is that the individual is faced with uh, a whole set of other problems that are more immediate and uh, and pertinent to existence on to existence. Period. Um, one of those being um, just the kind of basic psychological and spiritual um, issues and grapplings with nature. Uh, that that we are all faced with the the question of whether to um, follow a higher path and take personal responsibility or not. So uh, he frames the debate in this way, and um, I think before we get into Zizek's uh, response to Peterson uh, or non-response, as it turned out to be, um, maybe we can flesh out. Uh, Peterson's critique of uh, the Communist Manifesto a little bit, if if we want to go there. Well, um, I think that getting into a bit of Zizek's, um, well, what he said afterwards and in their discussion might uh, help frame that a bit, because like you said, Peterson came in, uh, you know, loaded to, you know, deconstruct Marxism and uh, Zizek wasn't really approaching that because it turns out he's not really a you know a staunch Marxist. 
And so maybe a, a, like a criticism of, of Peterson's approach was, was that, um, well, he wasn't really sure what he was getting himself into. Um, you know, he made an assumption about what Zizek's position would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of acknowledged that, well, in the debate, but it seemed like he probably hadn't read very much of Zizek and, uh, you know, got as familiar as he could in the short time that he had beforehand. But um, from Zizek's point of view, I'd say that, uh, you know, well, Zizek might say that Peterson didn't really grapple with Marxism per se, because the Communist Manifesto was like, uh, well, it's a short work. It's probably like if you combine the, you know, the works of Marx and Engels and then you could go even further with Lenin and Stalin, like even just Marx, like that's a tiny, tiny fraction of Marx's total writings. And so Zizek is more, as he revealed later on, like he's, he considers himself a Marxist in that he agrees with Marx's critique of capitalism pretty much like in his Das Kapital and that, uh, Peterson didn't really address the more kind of theoretical <clears throat> like substructure of Marx's thought. And um, <clears throat> so he might have seen it as kind of like a, a cheap shot by focusing on the, like, the, the Communist Manifesto and not really getting into the, the actual like, meat of what you know, academics, Marxist academics would consider Marxism. So <clears throat> he had a point, like he had a point there. In, in that sense, like, um, this wasn't really a debate between Marxism and capitalism. If you were to have that, you should like the, the form that would take, I think would be with a, like an actual like economist who is kind of like staked himself on a certain economic theory versus, you know, a Marxist who has staked himself on a certain economic and like a, you know, more grand historical narrative, but you didn't really get either of that. You know, Peterson's just a psychologist. He's not an economist. And uh, Zizek is more of like an eclectic uh, thinker, you know, taking bits here and there from all kinds of people. And it's like, as Peterson said later in the debate, it's like, well, he kind of asked Zizek why he considers himself a Marxist when really he's more of an original thinker, um, you know, taking, taking bits here and there and creating his own kind of synthesis. So, um, so maybe to get into like what Peterson was saying, like you said, he, he focused strictly on the communist manifesto. And I think he said like the reason for that is that, well, the communist manifesto has been a very influential work. So it deserves, you know, a critical look at it. And so I think that, um, you know, leaving aside the kind of, like, academic debate issues um, that um, that some people might have with this, you know, as in, like, you know, Peterson shouldn't be the guy criticizing Marxism because he doesn't know enough about Marx, Marx's actual writings, and Zizek, you know, shouldn't be the guy defending Marxism because he's not really a Marxist. Um like leaving that aside, I think Peterson's main point was strictly that that the Communist Manifesto has been very influential. So, and it's probably the only thing that most like you know young naive communists read from Marx. You know, they're not gonna you know get a bookshelf full of Marx and read everything and become like you know PhDs in Marxist theory. They're gonna read the Communist Communist Manifesto and then go out and try to stage a revolution if they can. Like that's what a lot of like you know young radicals tend to do. They don't. You know, they're not really academics. And, you know, as we'll talk about in, you know, future weeks when we get into more of ponderology, um, that's an interesting, or it's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, it's like there's the, there's like academia, there's the place where all these ideas are discussed and, and, and people write, you know, long books about them and articles. And then there's the, the actual real world where, you know, people are doing things and, uh, you know, engaging in some kind of political action. So from his perspective, he's basically saying, well, here's the Communist Manifesto, and here are 10 areas where he thinks that, uh, you know, Marx just gets, Marx and Engels just get things completely wrong. And if these things are wrong about them, naturally, you know, what, uh, what the Communist Manifesto seeks to achieve will either not come about in the way they um, envision, or it will come about in, you know, such a way that, uh, that is, you know, unforeseen. I guess those are the same things. Um, so from that, you know, he makes several points that, uh, that, uh, of course, you know, real Marxists would disagree with, but, um, um, I think the most important one was really the first one that he said, and that's the one you mentioned, Ilan, which is basically that, uh, Marx and Engels view history primarily through an economic class struggle lens. You know, he, he said other things like, uh, 
Well, I just read a, an article today in Current Affairs. It's uh, written by guy Benjamin Studebaker, who was really critical of, of Peterson's approach. I don't know if Studebaker's a, a Marxist or if he just teaches Marxism in his classes, but uh, he, kind of, he took those 10 points and then like criticized each of them from a Marxist perspective, which is probably... Well, like he titled the article, how Zizek should have responded to Jordan Peterson. So this is what, how a Marxist would have responded to, to that first section of, of Peterson's, uh, um, you know, debate. So like uh, he, well, it's handy because he breaks down the 10, um, you know, gives a short summary of them and then gives a, um, you know, the Marxist response. But um, I'll just read through some of the other things. Like uh, the second point was that uh, Marxism doesn't deal with natural scarcity well, this is this is Studebaker's um, you know interpretation and him phrasing it, so it's not a direct quote. But Marxism doesn't deal with natural scarcity. We need a hierarchy to deal with that. Um, history can be thought of as a binary class study, class struggle with clear divisions between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Um, and he criticized the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, basically asking, well, how exactly is that going to come about? Um, how do you plan that sort of thing? Who's going to be you know who? who are going to be the, the leaders of the dictatorship of the proletariat? How does everyone share power? And if sharing power isn't po possible or plausible because it isn't, then, you know, who decides who, who kind of takes over? And these are more like, just like basic psychological, sociological, um, like kind of just even truisms just about the way that societies structure themselves or people that people s structure themselves into a society. And, um, I think that was the, the overarching point of all these criticisms of the Communist Manifesto was that Marx had a really, Marx and Engels both had a very um, like impoverished view of, of human nature and how humans actually behave and act. Um, of course, not completely impoverished. You know, no one is so completely impoverished in their understanding of human nature that they can't get some things right. But there are certain essential things missing from that kind of analysis. So that goes back to like one of the ones I just mentioned, like the, the, the clear division between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Like you can, there, there are no clear divisions in, in nature or human society. Like there are always like that. If you, if you can learn anything from the intersectionality of like, you know, the, the kind of postmodern thought, it's like, that's a, that is true. It's like people can be like uh, divided in so many different ways. And the picture that you end up with is this like, you know, multiple Venn diagram with it where everything's overlapping and you'll find yourself in multiple circles and, and people will overlap to a large degree. In some situations, some will be, you know, so, so considered like bourgeoisie and others proletariat. And it's like, where exactly is the, the division? Like, how do you, how do you clearly define whether one person is like proletariat or bourgeoisie? It, be it becomes very difficult in practice. And that was his main, uh, that comes back to you know one of these main points is that when you actually get into the the practice of this as opposed to just the theory, then things become a lot more messy and and things aren't as as simple as the the doctrine as the dogma would have it. That that's the 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 greatest like the biggest flaw of grand theories and neg and narratives like a lot of which came out of the nineteenth century, is that uh, they have these these you know grand visions that are that look like everything's clearly delineated and here are all the different factors. Um, but that really is the, the creation of a, of a theoretician. It's like someone like creating these divisions and, and then assuming, oh, well, assuming those divisions are, are correct. This comes back to the thing that we've talked about repeatedly, the, you know, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, the fallacy of abstraction. You abstract these, these categories and then assume that those categories are as real as you believe them to be when in practice they never are. So when you actually have like the opportunity, let's say, of, of putting like a, a communist revolution into practice, then you have to answer these questions. Okay, well, who do we consider the bourgeoisie? Then it becomes very difficult but to, to answer that question. Um, and, that's, and that difficulty, that vagueness, is one of the reasons why things go south so quickly is because you've got this this setup where you've got the the oppressor and the oppressed in a in a in a class division and then there is like the 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 emotions behind the violence and behind the um the purpose and the the aim of ridding society of the the bad oppressors that then becomes it's a it's it's very slippery because how well it's very easy and it's within human nature to to latch that on to 
um, like other motivations and other purposes. So it's like if you're strictly going after the bourgeoisie, it's like, well, that guy, you know, he's technically not, you know, what other people might consider a bourgeoisie, but I really don't like the guy. I mean, something as simple as that is very easy to happen because you've unleashed these um, these violent, like, um, <clears throat> vengeful emotions, and then what is to what is to keep those in check and keep them in line with even the original like stated aims of the revolution? Well, there's nothing really. Only only the the kind of well, I wouldn't say nothing. There there are several potential things to keep that in check. First of all, there's your own conscience and your own self control, which tends to go out the window in these situations because uh, it's like the, the mob mentality takes over and it's like you know everyone's out. You know there were. In the Russian Revolution, there was all kinds of like what we'd call lynchings going on. People just, you know, being torn apart, um, you know, shot, hung from trees. It's like just a mass murder going on. And then you've got like, let's say the the organization itself, like the the structure of the of the 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 revolutionary like social movement. But even then, it's like anyone who's been in a in a social movement knows that you. you First of all, you've always got bad apples, and second, well, what, what if the people like leading the movement are just like everyone else? Mm -hmm. It's like you, you need if you have a movement, you need a, like a a really um, like a, a leader with a leader and an and an entire kind of structure hierarchy coming down from the leader of people with some moral character in order to keep those emotions emotions in check both in themselves and with the people underneath them. And you see good leaders do this, right? Like um, if they're in a group of, of people, like um, their, their, their followers or their underlings will often like want to get in fights with the people like the, on the opposite side, like at a rally or at a debate or something. And then oftentimes it takes that person to say, no, 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 guys, calm down. Don't do that anymore. Like you're, you're kind of getting out of hand. If you don't have that check on those people, it's like the, there is no check. And ultimately, on top of that, the the check is the the wider, like social structure, which is the the combination of, um, you know, well, just everything that makes up a society from the 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 well from the government to the police to just all of the interactions that make things work. It's it's a vastly complex system, and so like in a lot of um, well, just in everyday life, you have just the social norms that you're abiding by, and you've got the threat of of violence and coercion from like the police and from the you know the the government, the state, the people uh, in positions of authority, and and then you've got your own internalization of the the, more, the the norms of society that all kind of conspire and work together to keep those emotions in check. When you start tearing apart aspects of that social structure you start tearing apart, you know, all of those things that are keeping those emotions in check. So, um, coming back to Peterson, I think that is one of his main points, and it's the point that he thinks, it's the reason that he thinks psychology is really the, the place for analysis of these sorts of things, because um, you've got your theory on your one hand, you've got your manifesto, your vision of the future and, and of the present and what needs to be done, and then you've got the way reality actually is. So there are problems both with the description of, like the communist description of the way reality really is, in the problems that they identify and the reasons for those problems, and there are problems in the, the, the means by which, you know, the communists think that they can um, achieve their own goals and ends. And then there are the problems of what will actually happen given those problems and, um, and based on a, uh, like a more accurate understanding of human nature in, its, in all of its kind of variations and, um, you know, highs and lows. Well, yeah, like you were, you were saying, Harrison, that <coughs> Peterson, he mounted really a scathing rebuke of, of the popular conception of Marxism. And Zizek didn't, he didn't come back with a response that, that defended Marxism, like I think everybody expected him to. And I think one of the reasons that he didn't do that is kind of in line with what you were saying about this, these grand narratives and how tricky they can be, how it's easy to, uh, to confuse issues by just rely, uh, relying on big words like, you know, cultural Marxism and capitalism and socialism. And because that's one of his main, that was one of his main critiques of Peterson in his opening remarks 
was the fact that he uses the term cultural Marxism to uh, to kind of to to lump together all of these forces of evil, you know, and he uses the example of like Hitler telling the story of the Jews in order to, you know, to rally the people in Germany and in order to win, you know, political power and win the people on his side. And he says that that's basically what we're doing with, you know, this cultural Marxism stuff is that we're just telling stories to each other in order to try and explain things, but we don't really actually know what's going on. And I think he's valid. I think he's valid in making that point because I think there is this, there's an element of this, you know, cultural Marxism that is really tribal, you know, the anger at quote unquote cultural Marxism that is tribal. I can see how the alt-right can co-opt that, how the right wing kind of falls into this. Everyone is a, you know, who's left is a, is a cultural Marxist. Um, but, you know, Peterson has a good argument, a good case for why he uses the term. Um, and it still can be the case that the term is used in negative ways, but it also, this, his critique can be applied to him as well in his, you know, using the term, you know, capitalism, like it's, uh, it's responsible for all of the ills in the world, all of the military, uh, you know, invasions and the refugee crisis and all this. When it's capitalism itself, it seems to me, is really a, basically, if, you know, they were really to get down to the brass tacks and, and actually debate this issue, it would have been nice for them to define it. And to mm -hmm. me, capitalism basically is just one of many methods or techniques for, re, for investing, reinvesting wealth and in your ec and economic activity. You know, I think, you know, you could, we could, I've got uh, a quote here somewhere, I think, that actually has a really good um, definition of it, that capitalism is an economic system wherein privately owned, relatively well-organized, and stable firms pursue complex commercial activities within a relatively free, unregulated market, taking a systematic, long-term approach to investing and reinvesting wealth, directly or indirectly, in productive activities involving a hired workforce and guided by anticipated and actual return. It's a very rational activity, and it, it developed over the course of many, many centuries in very, very different places with very different results depending on the cultural, uh, depending on the culture that capitalism mm -hmm. was embedded within. Mm -hmm. Whether you're looking at like early Christian monasteries that practiced, you know, capitalistic type development or Italian banks or the English and the Industrial Revolution or this modern American style capitalism, it's very, it depends on whether you're looking at capitalism within an empire, within, you know, a militaristic state, within a, a state that doesn't have strong religious values, that doesn't, you know, cherish social values. It, all of these things mediate economic activity in ways that get left out when you just rely on, on, uh, on analyzing the world in terms of ideological slogans, whether, mm -hmm. you know, it's Marxism or, or uh, capitalism. Because, you know, when you... And, and I think, going back to my original point, I think this is one, that was one reason why Zizek didn't come out and amount a defense of Marxism is because he doesn't, that's not what he is, like you were yeah. pointing out. He's not a Marxist. He's an eclectic thinker. He's a character, and he's, he's really smart in many ways, but he's not a, he's, he didn't want to, rein, uh, to, to become this bogeyman. You know, he didn't want to, to create that image of the, the Marxist bogeyman that could be used, you know, to to uh, focus all of, you know, that 10 minutes of hate or whatever it was mm -hmm. in 1984, yeah. you know, Orwell's 1984. He didn't want that. He wanted to, uh, to, he wanted to critique Jordan Peterson himself. And I think it was really interesting how he did. Uh, he, he did present a couple of fairly good critiques of Peterson's philosophy um, that Peterson did a good job of, of, um, of rebutting though but still i thought you know i just i thought that was an important point to be made about just the context of the debate marxism versus capitalism you know mm -hmm. it's it's so it's very simplistic and i think that's one of the reasons why it didn't turn out the way everybody wanted it to is because yeah. it really couldn't well um my sense about zizek was that he was quite often uh he, he not only knew what he knew but he was also uh grasping for answers uh, there, there, there was a sense, and this is, I think what I like most about him is that, um, he, he's still, uh, asking, he's still in a process of, of thinking about the issues that, that, uh, he was presenting and, um, and kind of right there. And then even just trying to formulate, uh, his, his own understanding of 
what's happening in the world. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, taking a step back, it seems that in many ways, the two of them, Peterson and Zizek, had more in common with each other than not in common. There are times when, when Zizek says, um, you know, he, he talks about being responsible for our burdens and how happiness is a confused notion, desiring things we don't really desire and that we should be finding some meaningful cause beyond the pursuit of pleasurable survival. So uh, I don't think um, I don't think Zizek and and Peterson, despite what our expectations may have been for this debate, uh, were were really so much at odds as as uh, some people had hoped. In fact, there were there were moments when the word revolution um, was uh, was used by either Peterson or Zizek, I forget which. And you had a whole kind of uh, communist left-leaning contingent in the audience cheering um, as though revolution is the answer. And, um, and at, at, at a couple of intervals, uh, Zizek would you know, look over to the audience and, and kind of hold up his hand like, no, you, know, you, you don't have to start cheering by my mere mentioning of this, like holding up his hand, like, like you're not getting it quite. So I do think like what you said a little earlier, Harrison, about uh, so many of these left-leaning people these days, just reading the communist manifesto and just kind of following this uh, emotional line of thinking regarding the system um, is, is who you had in the audience. And, and Zizek's points were much more, Kind of subtle and nuanced, and and uh, an attempt to get to the bottom of some certain issues that were involved here. Well, um, I think one of the things that struck that stood out for me was that uh, you know, like you said, they they had a lot in common, you know, more than probably they themselves and the audience were expecting, and but I think that also they. They each kind of pointed out some some holes in the other in the other's understanding, and but I think that there's a way to kind of um, to reconcile them. It would require like a you know a third person in the debate probably, um, or you know just to bring in some other sources. But what I'm thinking about is this, um, like uh, Peterson's approach is. Now we'll be getting to this in a couple weeks too. Like I said, when we get more into ponderology, but uh, Peterson has like a both a theoretical and a like moral and even practical um, aversion to Marxism. So he doesn't like Marxism because, first of all, he thinks that there are you know basic fundamental like flaws in the theory, primarily psychologically, um, you know, in, in, in its understanding of human nature. He also sees the the um, the history of the practical attempts at implementation of of you know communist ideology and he also because of those things because of those two things he has a moral revulsion to the theory and uh you know to marx himself and so so that causes him all those things cause him to to reject it you know outright and zizek takes more of an approach of well let's let's actually look at the look at the things that might work and that and that uh that don't work and um, and both those approaches are like valid and go go a certain way, um, or go you know they 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 go a certain um, distance. But what they're kind of missing is that like there's probably a, like a, a more a wider framework in order to place both of those responses. And that's what Lobachevsky gives in Ponderology when he's talking about uh, schizoid ideologies, which we've talked about in previous shows. It says there are basically three responses. The first is the rejection often based on moral grounds, but for other reasons. It could just be even personal reasons. But then there are two kinds of, like, acceptance of the theory. <clears throat> so, of course, Peterson would fall into the first category of, like, rejection for various reasons. And uh, Lobachevsky points out that usually, well, within all of, the, all of those kind of natural forms of rejection of, a, of an ideology, there's always going to be, like, a, a moralizing within that rejection. And, and Zizek pointed that out, especially, you know, when... Uh, he even used that when he was that phrase uh, when he was well we'll we'll play a video in a bit but he he used that he pointed out that moralizing in uh, when he was criticizing 
Peterson's use, use of the phrase, you know, postmodern neo-Marxism. He says it's basically like this this moralizing, you know, kind of catch-all that uh, that doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to have as much substance as the people who use it um, think it has or try to come across as it having. And um, but then Zizek seems he he'd fall into the second category of acceptance, which uh, which Lobachevsky calls um, um, critical correction. Mm-hmm. So that would be like looking at a theory and kind of ig- ignoring or not placing much enf- emphasis on the bad parts or even acknowledging the bad parts, but then looking at the good parts and trying to basically re- um, like revivify the theory based on those good parts. It's like, oh, well, look, you know, B, F, and D are all wrong, but uh, maybe A, C, and the rest of them, like those are good, and so let's see how this works. So it's very, it's a, a generous approach to like to looking at a text or looking at an ideology or a movement or whatever. But then uh, um, Lovachevsky gives the third one, which is like a pathological acceptance. <clears throat> so this would be someone who basically shares the, the, the same kind of um, impoverishment of, you know, understanding of human nature. And part of that is an impoverish, impoverishment of their own nature um, or who have worse impoverishments, who can look at that theory and see, oh, they well, th- they're just as good as the critics who at, at, who are like the critics, the moral critics will look at a theory and look, well, this won't work because it'll because of all these things, and that's going to lead to some kind of disaster. And then the like the pathological acceptance, this would be like primarily psychopaths and other like people with personality disorders look at the theory and they've kind of got the same idea. Oh, well, this will actually create all these bad things, but I actually want that to happen. I want those things to happen. So I'm going to use this ideology as a means of of getting those things. You know, I actually want like a domination over um, all of these other people who are who I see as naive and um, you know not worthy of their station in life. I want to have that position. So I'm going to use this ideology to place myself in that position. And you know, for everyone who gets in my way or who who's on the you know the un- other end of my big stick, once I get there, well, that's your problem. Um, so there's this whole other dimension that uh, that Lobachevsky focuses on, and that's the the psychopathology involved in in these kinds of things. And he says you can't you can't look at an ideology, especially an ideology that results in uh, you know social movements and revolution and and uh, you know grand social changes, you know changes on a, a a grand social level, and not take this into account because you're missing the the most important part of the puzzle. So when um, when you're just focusing on the ideology, it's like, again, that's just like a, um, a theoretical thing. You, you're judging the pros and cons. There's also the practical aspect to focus on, which Peterson does, but there's also like the, the grander reason for, why all, for how and why all of this stuff happens the way it does. And um, I think that, so, I, so you can see Peterson coming at it from the, the angle of um, like the, the really kind of um, theoretical and practical and like basically um, like empirical and moral reasons why these ideologies are wrong. But even that in itself won't explain adequately um, why things, like why communism, for example, went to the like extreme depths of de- depravity that it did. Um, you're still going to be missing part of the picture. Now, Zizek, um, from his perspective, he can probably, based on you know what I heard in the debate, he'll, he'd probably a- agree with a lot of the a lot of the criticisms. He'd foc- he's more focused on like the the things that he sees as, as accurate, but he's still even he is kind of tied to the the ideology itself. He's well, he's analyzing on the level of the ideology. He isn't also going further and and saying, well, is, was there something about Marx himself and his writings that. Uh, you know, aside from the the theory and what he might have been right or wrong about, is there something else that acts as the kind of um, you know point of attraction for the kind of results that came out of a text like the Communist Manifesto? And what are all of like what are those features? That's what neither of them, I think, really got into. Is like why, like why, given like Marx, let's say, who writes this theory. Um, writes a lot of work, you know, analyzing economic systems and history and and having a vision of the future. Why is it exactly that that would lead to, first of all, the Communist Manifesto that uh, is more like a, a simplified version that doesn't include all the arguments, but is basically like a, a text looking for for a 
um, well, for a revolution, for like um, uh, a radical change in the social structure, like that might that is influenced by all of that theory, but isn't really a, a, a rational defense of of everything that goes into that theory. Um, how does that then lead to the the way it was implemented and the form it took once it was implemented? Um, that's the big question. And Peterson, at least, I think he he really attempts to to explain that. But um, um, but even with Peterson, I think he he doesn't quite. Um, well, he doesn't go as far like as, as Lobachevsky and in getting into the really nitty gritty. He, well, he's focused more on like the, the the normal person and how the normal person reacts to. And by normal, I just mean like you know the vast majority of people in the world, like without personality disorders, how they react to to various um, you know interpersonal and and social influences, and that those might be of a very negative character. You know, it could be extreme poverty or or um, or you know even something as simple as bullying and and like like, like pathological bullying, well, like extensive bullying and um, and just the like all the, the the selfish emotions that people feel and their lack of like development of character and how all these things would contribute to not only like participation in a in a revolution but also participation in like atrocities, let's say. But even then, by just f by focusing on that, like. Uh, he does acknowledge like the existence of evil and malevolence, and that's a very important part of everything that he talks about is how you know how prevalent and how real malevolence and evil is. But there's there's an entire um, there's like there's an entire um, like portion of of this analysis that, that should focus on those malevolent malevolent people. Like, what is their nature? What is their role? Why? What role do they play in all of this? Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think maybe the I may be wrong, but f judging you know from what I've seen from Peterson, like I think he had a he has a kind of again a moral revulsion to the idea of um, like a psychopath who is born evil essentially that there's no there's no possible redemption for let's say a child who is um, theoretically you know born a psychopath like that strikes him as as something that's very um, difficult to believe in. I believe I've even heard him say that that he doesn't. Uh, like he doesn't like a, a world where that's the case, and but it may be the case. It seems to me that that is the case. Like the the research on psychopathy seems to be suggesting pretty clearly that like a psychopathic personality develops, you know, very early, regardless of you know how much is genetic or however we think about genetic or you know how much is influenced by like uh, child rearing strategies. Like you can have psychopathic traits that emerge as you know young as like three years old and and. Some people like remain like that their entire lives, and it doesn't seem like they can be changed. So, what is the role of individuals like that in the, in this whole like complex interaction of of individuals, which is really what it comes down to? Um, Lobachevsky tries to to look at things from that perspective. So, I think you know each each uh, you know each perspective has its kind of its pros and cons, um, but really you. you what we'd need is, uh, you know, a framework that that takes into account the most factors like possible, like as many factors as we can identify that will that are actually um, relevant to the the phenomena that we're describing, and um, and go from there, really, which we'll be doing for, in future weeks. But <laughs> yeah, um, just one thing I wanted to say: uh, you're talking about. Marx and his character and what role like pathological individuals play in the development of these kinds of ideologies and why they attract, you know, so many different pathological types of people. And I'm, I'm reading a really interesting biography on Karl Marx right now and I'm about halfway through and he um, just reading about his life just give you gives you the heebie jeebies, you know, from from the get go. Because he was, as an individual, as a young adult, and as an adult, and throughout up to, leading up to the publication of the Communist Manifesto, where I'm at right now in the book, he um, he was basically he was a parasite. You know, he 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 spent money that he didn't earn. He couldn't make a living. He didn't uh, publish books or papers on time. The only thing that he was really the the thing that he seemed to be fired up the most about was the fact that people had to work. 
to him that that seemed to really like that was just a core kernel of his personality was the fact that people had to work and that he you know when you think about the alienation of labor which you know in our modern times we think of that in terms of like the mechanization of of people on assembly lines like robots you know that's what we think of when we think of the alienation of labor but for marx that's not what it was at all it was literally just working was the alienation because you it was the externalization and loss of yourself you know you had to go to work for somebody else and that was like just unbelievable to him when i think about the how normal people react to that you know a lot, like i think of my father for example that you know he he also got fired up about that about having to you know go to work for somebody else and he started his own business mm. that was it <laughs> And he's run his own, his own business his entire life. You think about a lot of people who get fired up. Like, they're like, I, you know, I, I hate this job. But to think that it would spurn you to initiate a worldwide revolution. Now, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about pathological individuals is that these are, you know, you think about, um, you know, how romanticized, you know, Marx is and Marxism and all this. But it's, it's really just these really simple little things that people have to deal with. They get blown so far out of control that you know he that he it sparks uh, a revolution that continues to you know to to plague uh, mankind to this you know to this day. You know he just as a as a just I w- just wanted to mention the fact that he he was constantly trying to get his mother to pay all of his bills for his entire life. As, as far as I can see, he you know he's just begging her for money. He, he got a lot of his money from capitalists, and then he would turn them down because he was so angry that they were capitalists and he thought they were worthless. Then he would write in you know publications about how worthless capitalists are, and even his socialist communist friends had to remind him that they were the ones paying his bills. And any socialist who wasn't for bloody, com- uh, bloody revolution, well, he, would, he would attack them viciously in the press. He was, he was always writing about how stupid and pathetic they were. And he had dedicated, like, I think, 65% of one book to attacking this small, unknown socialist who, who advocated for personal development in order to, in order to you know, institute a more utopian society. That's mm-hmm. how he, he thought socialist ideas would come into play. Um, because what Marx, he said that, you know, the communist ideal would be a society where people just get to do whatever they want. I feel like fishing in the morning. I'll go work, do this in the afternoon. And that was the ideal communist society. And he thought that it would occur after capitalism, after capitalism kind of lifted people's boats, but then it would take the liberation of the proletariat or the dictatorship of the proletariat to actually institute this, this magnificent ideal. But just to go back to what I was saying, this, this, it was a dissociative daydream to anybody else, to any normal person. This is your retirement. After you've put in a full life of work, raised kids, you've you know, watched your grandkids born and you know, they're growing up, and now you retire and, and this is, you, you know, maybe you get to fish in the morning or you know, you know, if you're in a prosperous society, this is what you, obviously this is your hope. But to, uh, to initiate a, a revolution <laughs> over it, you know, the, that's, that's, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. And one thing that I think was also lacking from the debate was the historical context. And I, I, I just can't see any usefulness out of any debate um, that, that, that lacks the historical, you know, the historical and psychological context of the, the people who started these, mm. these large, you know, these large ideologies. And, and like you said, there's obviously there's, there are Marxists out there who were critically corrective. And then, I mean, because there is a criticism that can be made of capitalism, Mm -hmm. just as there's a critique of anything that you, that exists under the sun, you can critique anything, but you know, to just always to remember the source of these ideas and keep that in mind that this is the, this is the orientation. This is, this is the desire of the, of the individual, the desires and the lifestyle that, that this ideology was born from. Mm-hmm. That, that's very interesting, Corey. I didn't know that about Marx. And uh, it makes a lot of sense um, now that you mention it. Because uh, one of the ideas that I think uh, Peterson presented early on in this discussion, this debate, was you know, th- this presumption on the part of uh, Marxists that once they came to power they would have the competence to accomplish anything on the level that the, that the capitalists did. 
they had this kind of pie-in-the-sky theory that by virtue of them being Marxists, by virtue of their feelings and, and their, uh, their emphatic declarations of, of being right and being oppressed and how the system had to change, that this somehow um, elevated them enough to, to be competent to do all the things that, that up until that time uh, capitalists had successfully been responsible for. Um, and that, and that's, uh, obviously a very dangerous thing to, uh, overestimate, uh, one's abilities based on fantasy and, uh, emotion and, 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 um, this radical fervor that, that seems to have taken hold among many leftists and, and Marxists or neo-Marxists. And, uh, did you want to say something? Yeah. Well, on, on that, um, on that sort of note, uh, I thought we would play back a portion of the debate between Zizek and Peterson um, to give some good idea of the kind of uh, back and forth they had, uh, but also to see how well um, the two of them uh, played out their discussion. And um, this next clip is, uh, is Zizek asking Peterson... Um, I think you mentioned this a little earlier, Corey, you know, who, who are the neo-Marxists? Uh, you know, where, where are they? Why don't I know about them? And uh, Peterson has a very, uh, very interesting and uh, appropriate response that uh, I felt was terrific and hit the mark. So we're going to listen to that. So I'm asking you now not to read more, I don't advise you, but who are, give me some names and so on, and who are these postmodern egalitarian neo-Marxists, and where do you see any kind even of, of Marxism? I see in it mostly an, an impotent, an utterly impotent moralization. Please, I'm so sorry that that was too No, that's no problem. Well, I mean... Um, organization like Jonathan Haidt's, um, uh, what's it called? Heterodox Academy and other organizations like that have documented an absolute dearth of conservative voices in the social sciences and the humanities and about 25% according to the uh, what I think are reliable surveys, approximately 25% of social scientists in the US identify themselves as Marxists. And so there's that. But where are the well, okay, but, but let, Can well, you name me one? Uh, the, I know a couple of Marxists. For example, uh, uh, who does very solid economic work. Yeah, I don't totally... Uh, David Harvey, one. But he writes very serious books of economic analysis and so on and so on. Then there is the old guy who is far from simplification, Frederick Jameson and so on. But they are totally marginalized today. In this politically correct mainstream, you know, I, I don't see. Well, yeah, your question seemed to me to focus more on the, per, the peculiar relationship that I've noticed and that people have disputed between postmodernism and, and neo-Marxism. And I see the connection between the postmodernist types and the Marxists as a sleight of hand that replaced the notion of the oppression of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie as the oppression by one identity group by another. Totally and, agree with okay, you. Okay, so but that but so now look, we we could. But have that's a, precisely we could, a non a, a non Marxist gesture. Well, well, that that's the, see. That, I guess that's where we might have a dispute because I think what happened, especially in France in the 1960s, is as the as the radical. Marxist postmodern types like Derrida and Foucault realized that they were losing the moral battle, especially after the information came out of the Soviet Union in the manner that it came out. That, that so the whole, and so yeah, on. that the whole bloody Stalinist, yeah. the whole Stalinist catastrophe, along with the entire Maoist catastrophe, that they didn't really have a leg to stand on. And instead of revising their notion that human history, and this is a Marxist notion, should be regarded as uh, the eternal class struggle between the economically deprived and the oppressors, they just recast it and said, well, it, it's not based on economics, it's based on identity, but it's still fundamentally oppressor against 
oppressed. And to me that meant that they smuggled the, the, the fundamental narrative of Marxism and many of its goals back into the argument without ever admitting that they did so. Now I've been criticized, you know, for this supposition because people who are postmodernists say, look, one of the hallmarks of postmodernism is skepticism of meta-narratives. It's like, I know that perfectly well. And I also know that Marxism is a meta-narrative, and so you shouldn't be able to be a postmodernist and a Marxist. But I still see the union of those two things in the insistence that the best, the appropriate way to look at the view world is to view it as the battleground between groups defined by a particular uh, group between individuals defined by a particular group identity, so that the group identity becomes paramount, and then the proper reading is always oppressor versus oppressed. With a secondary insistence that's very similar to Marx's insistence upon the um, moral superiority of the proletariat, that the oppressors are by definition, because they're oppressed, morally superior. So... Two things um, thought I'd mention here, and one is, I love that Zizek is asking questions of Peterson. He really wants to know. He really doesn't understand uh, this part of uh, Peterson's uh, critique or, or language, and um, and so Peterson, in his erudite, articulate, patient, fatherly way you know, sits down, Zizek, so to say, and explains to him, you know, th this, is a, uh, this is a kind of a, of, a, of a language. It may not be economic per se, but there is still this, uh, this dialectic of oppressor versus oppressed that um, with, with individuals, you know, through their identity politics, taking on the oppressed uh, position and, and the higher moral, uh, moral high ground, and um, and deciding out of that identity to uh, to want to take power back from quote unquote uh, those who have been oppressing them. Um, so I, I think it, it was a terrific response, and it was classic Peterson uh, in this case. And um, a part of what made the whole discussion as good as it was, even if it was deficient and left out the historical context of, of some of the matters that they were getting into. Well, <clears throat> I kind of like, I agree with both of them. Like I, well, maybe that's my agreeableness, but uh, you know, cause I, I agree, like I can see where Peterson's coming from and the, like the way he, he kind of thinks about neo-Marxism, but then Zizek has a point. It's like, well, why call it neo-Marxism? It's like, if you reduce like Marx and Marxism completely to this idea of, you know, oppressor and oppressed classes, that's kind of like, that really is like a simplification. It may be a good simplification, but it's like, but it has nothing to do really with, with what Marx actually wrote or thought. So then to just call it neo-Marxism, it's like, well, it, it reminds me of Marxism. It's got this one kind of similarity to Marxism, but there's nothing Marxist about it, like strictly Marxist. So it's like, you don't really need the word. It's like, uh, if someone's a Marxist, then just, you know, bash them for being a Marxist. But uh, if, maybe it's just because, you know, there isn't, a, there isn't a, a good appropriate word. And maybe, you know, that, that's just nitpicking. It's like, it's like, okay, so we've decided to call it neo-Marxism. Well, that, that, that'll upset, you know, the, the sticklers for historical accuracy and, uh, you know, sharply and, and uh, sharply defined and delineated concepts and, and categories. But, um, so I, I, I really don't know where I fall in it. Just maybe because I don't, I don't really use that word anyways. It's like, uh, you know, the damn neo-Marxists. It's like, well, if I see a bunch of kids, you know, with hammer and sickle flags, like in Antifa, like calling for a communist revolution, I'll call them, I might call them neo-Marxists because they're, they're new and they're young and they, you know, have a copy of the Communist Manifesto in their back pocket, but it's like uh, just to kind of call all of like the identity politics like brigade neo-Marxist. It's like, well, you know, well, personally, I could you know take it or leave it. It's not a real big deal to me, but um, I guess that's just to say I can see their points. Right. I mean, you can just look at them in terms of like ramified pathological networks. To use yeah, like a to borrow terminology from political ponderology, which is what it seems like it's 
kind of come down to, right? I mean, that's the that's the biggest common denominator mm-hmm. between the two things. That's what they are. Yeah. Pathological networks of people who just just messed up. Yeah. Well, and also you could like you you have a you can find examples of movements and even if not like full-blown ideologies then like, you know, mini ideologies like before Marx about, you know, the the oppressed rising up against the oppressors. It's like and people like people viewing reality in the in those categories it's didn't start with Marx. You know, that's as old as as humans to uh to like demonize your the oppressor group and the oppressor class in one form or another, it could be like a you know a f- uh, foreign rulers and like foreign occupiers. It could be like the just the people that speak a different language in the in a small geographic area, like uh, or you know the people of a different religion. Like there have always been conflicts of this sort where the 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 group with the you know with with less perceives the the group with more to be the oppressors and in some cases that will be true to to one degree or another and you know some to a greater degree than other and um so what we're seeing is kind of like a you know it's it's marxism shaped because marx marxism was shaped on this kind of this way of looking at, at the world which has been around forever so um well yeah don't know what more to say about that well the only other uh, thing I wanted to comment on regarding the debate was um, Zizek's talking about uh, regulations and um, unfettered corruption and monopoly capitalism. Uh, there were a few times in the discussion where he had uh, brought up the ills of, of Western monopoly capitalism um, which is, I think, a good distinction to be made from regular capitalism. Quite often people say, oh, capitalism is bad, when they should really um, think about the fact that it, it doesn't have to look the way it does in Western well, society there are several today. capitalisms. Right? Yeah, and, and uh, those can be discussed at length. So um, he, you know, he was talking at some point, and he didn't sound to me like, an environmentalist uh, per se, but he, you know, he lamented the the kind of uh, mass uh, pollution in the oceans, um, and brought up a, a few other geopolitical issues, and was really uh, at at a grasping um, at the kind of urgency of of making things better in the world. Uh, as a whole, um, and so he, I think he's much more kind of uh, aware, or at least um, uh, kind of uh, well well versed in geopolitical issues than than I've heard Peterson uh, in the talks I've heard by him. Um, at least coming from this this other side of the equation. And I did appreciate it very much, and uh, it made me kind of appreciate Zizek, uh, having expected to hear this staunch um, communist uh, Marxist uh, in this debate. So, just wanted to mention that. Uh, if there's nothing else, I I would just hope that people uh, get a chance to watch this really entertaining wonderful, enriching discussion between the two. Uh, you get to hear Peterson respond in real time to a, a true intellectual. Uh, you, you get introduced to um, Zlavo Zizek and, uh, and his ideas, even though he was all over the place quite often. Uh, out of respect for Zizek, I'm not going to do my impersonation of him today. Uh, I don't think um, any of us will, although we could. Um, but just a, just a quick comment about that, and we'll bring this to a close. The guy is the guy has a pulse. He's vital, as as stoic and as self-contained as Peterson is. Uh, Zizek is brimming with emotion and excitement and vitality for the subjects he he's uh, he's discussing and thinking about. It's very refreshing because obviously the guy is very sincere. Uh, he draws on personal analogies and, and understandings, and um, 
Tells a good joke. Tells a good joke and, and just totally refreshing uh, voice for two hours. So uh, on that note, folks, thanks for tuning into Mind Matters. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you or speaking with, with each other and, and uh, having you tune in very, very soon. Take care. <laughs>